What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness, in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Have you ever felt broken or somehow flawed in the sex department? If so, you are not alone. And I think you'll get a lot from Steph Autary's story. The journalist and the author of the reported memoir, A Dirty Word, thought her challenges were signs of sexual dysfunction and inadequacy for years. She eventually learned otherwise and now hopes to instill different messaging in her daughter. If you're looking for fun ways to experience more pleasure these days, head to thepleasurechest.com to explore awesome sex toys, lube, and more. Now you can shop their Summer Vibes and Perfect Pairs collection for toys that play well together and remote-controlled vibes for safe and sexy social distancing. I also recommend their Summer Sex Tips series with sex educator Sophia Darling, which you can check out on Instagram. Go to at pleasurechest.stores. So when Steph and I chatted, she told me she didn't learn much at all about sex growing up. During sex ed class, she spent most of her time passing notes with a boy she had a major crush on. So she didn't really even know what intercourse was until later. God, I can't remember how old I was, but I was watching that TV special about Magic Johnson and AIDS and HIV crisis And they explained how one would contract HIV. And it occurred to me that they were talking about sex. And I was like, wait a second. I mean, the what goes in the where, that that is what the sex is. Ew, I never want to do that ever. Steph said she never spoke about sex or what she learned about it with her mom. There was just this unspoken understanding that it would have to wait until marriage. Then, when she was 19, Steph started dating a guy who was six years her senior. And so my mom took me aside one day. She sat me down in the living room, and she started to have the sex talk with me at the age of 19. It was basically just like, I know you guys are going to want to have sex. I just ask that you wait until we make an appointment with a gynecologist so you can get some birth control pills. And that was about it. And I didn't take the entire conversation seriously because I had no intention of having sex at that time. Steph was still figuring she would wait to have sex until marriage, of course. And the relationship with that young man, her first boyfriend, brought difficulties that would help lead to the premise of her book. She started the memoir, A Dirty Word, with a chapter called Being Broken. When she wrote that, she was referring to what happened after the relationship, but she told me it applies to the relationship itself, too. Her first sexual experiences were with this man, and the very first was particularly hurtful. It was coercive, and I I was not ready, but I felt that I loved him. So after that, I was like, well, it's already happened. Might as well keep going. So over the course of that relationship, he just made me feel so self-conscious about my lack of experience in so many ways. I always felt inadequate throughout the course of our relationship in in the bedroom. And then afterwards, because it was such a negative experience for me, I felt 
afraid of intimacy after that. And so I eventually came to the conclusion that I had a form of female sexual dysfunction and hence the being broken and feeling that I had to fix myself. As with many hurtful relationships, it wasn't all bad. In many ways, this guy helped pave the way for Steph's pleasure and self-discovery, early on especially. Before they had penetrative sex, they explored other types of sexy play. And for a while, everything felt new and exciting for her. He was very good at giving me pleasure. And in fact, he was the first person to suggest that I should try out masturbation, that I should try taking charge of my own pleasure. So it was sort of an awakening for me in that way. And the fact that it was eventually tied to this very unpleasant experience and to this relationship that goes on to become so emotionally and sexually abusive is, is just a shame because it, it was it was both at the same time I was learning about my own pleasure but then at the same time I was learning that it wasn't really in the context of that relationship my own. So how did Steph go from that from the abusive relationship and feeling sexually broken to building an entire career around sex? She told me she didn't pursue it in order to heal at least not at first. Rather, she sort of fell into an opportunity. When I broke up with Guy, I eventually dropped out of school at around the same time, but then ended up transferring to another school in another state. Meanwhile, she started looking for college internships. One day, she was called in for an interview with the new media department of the Boston Phoenix. And she was excited at the thought of writing for such a popular publication, and one that she loved. Only, it wasn't quite what she was anticipating. So I went in, and I soon learned that it was not that at all. The company owned two personal sites, and basically the internship was to write for these two personal sites, one of which was very adult in nature. And at the time, I mean... <laughs> I was sort of blindsided. When I was there for my interview, the guy who would eventually become my supervisor, he asked me, are you comfortable with adult content? And, you know, I know nothing. I knew nothing. And in my head, I was thinking, what, what does that mean? What is adult content? I mean, this is how little I knew. But out loud, I was like, of course I'm comfortable. <laughs> so, so then he goes on to, to show me what the job entails. And, and then that was it. Uh, so I fell into that internship. And later on, after writing a few pieces, I realized that I was having a lot of fun with it. And I realized that it, it this was a real opportunity to experiment and to try different things. And to because I was reviewing a lot of sex toys and porn especially, it was a chance to sort of explore on my own terms. I was single at the time, but this internship gave me the opportunity to explore sexuality on my own terms. I love that Steph has been so open about her experiences not knowing much about certain sex-related things, because I imagine most of us can relate in some way. I know I can. As you can hear from this quick little story I shared with her. I remember asking literally a teacher what a blowjob was because I had no idea. And right. someone was like, no, you just go ask the teacher because, aha. <laughs> I mean, I was like, what do you blow on? I don't get it. Then there's this gem from Steph. 
So uh, on my first day on the job, my supervisor introduced me to the other interns, one of whom would be managing all of the interns. So he basically gave me the lowdown and he showed me these drawers that were just filled with sex toys, lube, condoms, erotica, all, all the goodies. And he's like, you basically choose whatever you want to choose and you write about it. I go looking through the drawer and I pick out a couple books and stuff. And then I see this this big double-ended dildo. It's purple and shiny. And I was like, uh, I mean, I like the color purple. Why don't I give this a try? So I take it home with me. I'm alone in my room in my apartment. And I'm, I'm unpacking all the stuff. And then I'm like, okay, which end of this is supposed to go inside of me? I don't, I don't get what's happening. Is one thing the handle and the other thing is the dildo? I don't know. And I finally read the instructions that come along with it. And I realize that one person is supposed to wear it by having it inside of them while they then thrust into the other person. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I am not sexually active right now. This is going to be a tough one to pull off. I eventually decided, well, you know what, maybe I will just use one end as the handle and and thrust the other end inside of me so at least I could see how it feels, see if that's pleasurable. But I just couldn't even bring myself to get it inside of me. I was just so afraid to penetrate myself with that toy. And I eventually just gave up. It was it was just a loss. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I, I chickened out. That internship took place during Steph's senior year of college. After graduating, she moved back home to New Jersey. And about a year later, she met Michael. We met, this is going to make me sound so old, we met on Friendster, which I don't know if everyone would even remember what that is, <laughs> but it was like the precursor to MySpace. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't think that I was going to meet anyone, but but I met this guy on Friendster, which wasn't supposed to be a dating site. We hit it off, but very quickly I started to get nervous about, you know, the intimacy part of things. In A Dirty Word, Steph wrote, I had spent so long holding back pieces of myself that it seemed wrong to let myself relax into full intimacy. And for a time, that wasn't something she felt she could bring up to Michael. At first, I felt weird talking to him about it. I was just, you know, we're taking it slow. We're taking it slow. I'm not having sex with you yet. We can make out, whatever. I was very attracted to him. Um, I wanted to fool around with him, but I was just scared to take that final plunge. I, I hadn't really enjoyed sex since that first relationship, so I didn't know how this was going to go. And at first, it was fine. The first time we eventually had sex, maybe about a month or two into our relationship, but then he wanted to have another go at it. He was having trouble convincing me. I was like, I don't know. And then he was sort of just, you know, he was, he was kneeling over me and he said, come on. And the, just the way he said it um, and that little, the little smirk on his face, it just made me think of that first boyfriend. And it just, I became so upset. Just thinking, I just started crying because I was just suddenly back there in that first terrible relationship with a person who did not give a crap about my feelings. So I started crying and of course he had no idea why. He didn't mean anything by it. So at that point, I told him about that past relationship and I told him that it was hard for me 
to uh, sort of let myself go and enjoy sex, or enjoy penetrative sex anyway. Thankfully, Michael was kind about her past experiences and derivative emotional challenges, and he seemed fine with taking things slow. Before and after they got engaged, Steph worked with a therapist. During sessions, she recalls talking about her fears about committing to him and this sense that she was somehow trapped. She also worried that he deserved someone, quote, better than her, given her lower desire for sex. Basically, maybe he'd, he'd be better off with someone who is a little less work when it comes to the bedroom, you know? When it comes to the sex life, maybe he'd be better off with someone who was a little bit less work. But the, those conversations happened around my fear of commitment. I don't believe we ever tied together the fear of commitment with the fear of intimacy when we were in our therapy sessions, to get, when, when I was with my therapist. Like, she knew I wrote about sex. She knew I felt a little off sexually. She knew that I felt that maybe I had some sort of female sexual dysfunction, that I had low libido, that I was experiencing pain during sex. Put the two together, that fear of intimacy and that fear of commitment. And I know now that it's because so many people in the healthcare professions, mental health or physical health, don't really get an education in sexual health, unless they're specializing in it. So sometimes when you go to just a general clinical psychologist, I mean, they're not going to have the expertise in order to adequately guide you through that sort of experience. She is so right about that. Marriage and family therapists, social workers, and counselors often have the option of studying sex counseling for a bit, but it's more like an add-on possibility. Whereas the typical sex therapy training program lasts for 12 to 18 months. Here's a funny thing that happens when you do study sex, whether as a therapist, a scientist, a sex worker, or a sex writer. People make all sorts of presumptions. I was at a, a networking event and I just got into conversation with some guy and we were talking, talking. He asked me what I do. I told him what I write about. We talked about his job. He was he was a web developer. But eventually, I was like, you know, I think it's time for me to head home. I had to. I was in New York, and I had to get back to Jersey. And I said I was going to walk to the Port Authority. He said, Oh, I'm going there too. Let's walk together. So we're walking across town, and we go to um, cross the street. And he goes and he holds my hand, <laughs> and I'm like, uh, okay. Uh, what's happening here? I didn't say this out loud. I had it in my head. What's going on? Should I, is it weird for me to be overreacting about this? I, I don't know what's happening. I was clearly wearing a wedding ring. I mean, he must have felt the wedding band and the engagement ring especially. So, um, and I think I had mentioned that I am married, but nevertheless, he held my hand and he said to me, eventually, you know, hearing about your work turns me on. And I'm like, oh, and I take my hand back and I'm like, you know, even sex gets boring. And I try to just laugh it off because that's what I do when I'm in an uncomfortable situation like that. I don't know how to react. I don't know if I'm overreacting. We eventually get to the Port Authority and he's like, oh, why don't we find somewhere where we could like be alone for a little while? And I'm like, no, gotta get home. I don't think my husband would, you know be thrilled with me hanging out late in the Port Authority with a strange man. So I sort of tried to play it off like, oh, it's because I have this traditional husband who is traditional that I must go home and we cannot fool around. But like I was I was sort of scared. I was scared that he was going to follow me to my gate even. But 
these types of like just saying what I write about I've I've had these sorts of reactions from people who assume oh you're some crazy nymphomaniac okay or you're super kinky you are amazing in the bedroom (laughs) people assume all these things about me when the entire reason I write about sex is that I'm trying so hard to figure it out because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Steph has figured out many things over the years amid many life changes from difficulties to conceive to struggling with postpartum depression. Perhaps most importantly, she's learned that she is not and never was broken. Steph said she still considers sex a work in progress. Things haven't been easy lately amid the pandemic when privacy runs low and she and Michael are homeschooling on top of other responsibilities. Thankfully, her sex writing for so many years has helped her and Michael basically ace talking about sex-related issues. I love hearing about people's epiphanies they've had along the way throughout their sexual empowerment journeys. I wasn't surprised to learn that Steph has had many. The first epiphany I had was that just because I didn't want sex as often as my partner didn't mean that I was a problem. It didn't mean that there was something wrong with me. It just meant that sex for me uh, had a different place in my life than it had for him. So that was a huge epiphany for me because for the longest time, I mean, like we talked about earlier in our conversation, I thought of myself as broken. I thought of myself as the problem. I thought of myself as maybe a little too much for someone to have to deal with. And it, it, it always had me in this endless cycle of guilt, but then resentment and guilt and resentment. Um but then I read Emily Nagoski's Come As You Are, and she she wrote quite a bit about how these things aren't, you know, individual problems, they're couple problems. And just because one person wants less than the other, that doesn't mean that they're, they're the issue. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it has to be a coming together in the middle, some sort of compromise, some sort of conversation between the two of you. So that was huge for me. And it also opened me up to the fact that, I mean, there's not just one. I mean, we talk about penetrative sex as if it is the only sex, but there are so many other ways to um, enjoy pleasure and to enjoy each other. And when you place just that one thing as the end goal, it can place a lot of pressure on people within a relationship. Another excellent point. Many people love intercourse. Many people prefer other types of sex. The question, how do you define sex, is one I think more of us should think about. Many teens learn that sex equals penis and vagina intercourse. Imagine how confusing that can be if you're not straight, or if that style of sex doesn't do a whole lot for you, arousal or orgasm-wise. It can be easy to wonder if we're broken. Steph learned a lot about the mixed messages folks received just before learning she was pregnant when she took a job working for ASECT, the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Working with them, I you know, got to know a lot of sexuality educators in particular and to learn more about sex ed in our country and the, how bifurcated it is and how, you know, one person may be receiving one sort of sex education while another district is receiving something else entirely. And I was like, holy crap, this is terrifying. 
especially because I'm having a daughter and especially because of the all pervasiveness of rape culture. So, so that scared me a lot and it made me want to, to be the kind of mother who could teach her daughter the important things and not completely fuck up the conversations, <laughs> which, which, you know, is a work in progress. But at that time, when I was pregnant and I was doing that sort of work, my writing started to shift and the book shifted too. The book shifted too. It wasn't so much about this terrible experience I'd had and how it had impacted my sex life, which is how the book had started out. But it became about so much more and it became about the world my daughter was going to grow up in and how that might possibly change, how I needed it to change for her so she could be safe in this world. To feel safe, empowered, have a sense of autonomy. Every child deserves that. Embracing sex-positive parenting is so important. Well, early on, it was just teaching her, you know, the proper names for her body parts, just as if they were any other body part. Just as if it was an elbow, she would know what her vulva was, you know. They were, it's like the same. They're both a natural part of your body. And I wanted to just normalize those things for her because so often people give their kids like cutesy names for their genitals because they don't want to use the names. And in that way, they like other that part of the body. They make it like this taboo, secretive thing. So right away, I just wanted to make all of that normal for her. And then I feel like you're always going to screw up when you're trying to answer your kid's questions and when you're trying to teach them what you feel like you need to teach them. But I feel like a lot of the time you have to let your children lead the discussion and you need to be honest with them when they ask a question. But at the same time, you need to answer in a way that while honest is also what you feel is appropriate for their age for them to know, <laughs> which, which can be a tough a tough um, thing to know all the time. It can be tough to know what you're supposed to be answering. But at least at this young age, the questions they ask are just incredibly literal, literal. Like some people, they'll, they'll hear a question about where babies come from and feel like, oh my God, I have to answer the entire question of what intercourse is and the sperm and you know the egg. But where they're they're really literally asking like where does the baby come from physically? <laughs> where does like it comes from? You know, it grew in here and then it comes out of here, and that's what they're asking. So you need to take a step back, not freak out when your child asks you something, and then just be honest and answer what they're actually asking. <laughs> Steph added that freaking out over kids' questions also fuels stigmas around healthy sexuality, which causes so many problems into adulthood, such as feeling broken because we really enjoy sex, or we desire it more or less than a partner, or we're attracted to someone of the same sex or gender. The list goes on and on. If you've been feeling broken or flawed because of an aspect of your sexuality, Steph wanted you to hear this message. I would tell you that what you're feeling and what you're experiencing is completely normal. The fact that we are so afraid to talk about these things is the reason we don't realize that. We don't realize how many other people are experiencing the exact same thing that we are experiencing. And if everyone is experiencing this, then how can it be abnormal? How can it possibly be pathologized? It's just 
a normal life experience and something that, you know, okay, we need to work through, but it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you or that you're in any way broken. To learn more about Steph's journey, check out her book, A Dirty Word, through the link down in the show notes. This week's listener question comes from someone who wishes to remain anonymous who wrote this. I came across your podcast to help me with my therapy and becoming more sex positive. I am 39 years old and I have never had sex. I have severe anxiety when things get physical, sometimes to the point of vomiting. My last date slash relationship was over 10 years ago. I'm really trying to work on it in therapy. I struggle with the why am I like this? I don't want to be, but I can't figure out a way to get over it. I think it could be from a number of issues. They went on to describe some childhood traumas they think they have blocked out and medical issues, including a chest deformity, which could make pregnancy very high risk. And they went on to say this, I think this scared me into thinking I can't get pregnant or I'll die. And I perhaps would not be as valuable as a wife to someone if I can't have a baby, like I'll be a waste of someone's time. I struggle with all of this and only recently started to open up to a therapist. I've never talked about my struggle to anyone else and feel a lot of shame and embarrassment with never being able to have sex. I was just wondering your thoughts on this. My friend, thank you for trusting us with your message. I promise you, you are not as alone as you feel. You are brave and you are thoughtful. And I love that you are talking about these challenges with a therapist. As someone who has endured trauma, like so many of us have, and spoken to many people who have, partly for a book I'm co-writing on this topic, I can promise you that there is a very real thing called post-traumatic growth. And I really, really believe you're on that path because shame can't thrive in isolation. So the fact that you're opening up about this is just tremendous. I also want to mention that I have been in that place before where I'm like, why can't I just get over this? And this is a hard thing for a lot of us to accept, but it's not about getting over it. It's about learning to manage what's happened while having self-compassion, taking baby steps, taking good care of ourselves. And the rewards of that are just so, so immense. I want you to have all of them. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Thanks so much for this question. And I think so many people can resonate because they may not themselves have ever known this kind of severe anxiety, but they may have certainly had a family member or a friend. And I think when people don't recognize how much we can get hijacked by anxiety and how it really does impact our nervous system, so much so that it can lead to vomiting is in your case, but for others, it often is what we refer to as panic attacks, where literally it can feel like having a heart attack. That's really how extreme anxiety can be and how it can really paralyze a lot of our functioning. Um, and so I can imagine, based on what you're sharing with us, that you know, the thought or the idea of being intimate in and of itself, you know, it hasn't even happened. We call this anticipatory anxiety. It's like a whole other layer on top of it that makes the thought of approaching it or having the experience or going out on a date evoking so much anxiety that, you know, the most common strategy around that is avoidance. And so the fact that you're in therapy now and bringing this up with your therapist, I just want to say kudos to you. I think it's amazing because it doesn't matter if you're 39 or 49 or 59. Your older self is absolutely going to thank you for doing this really hard work that you're doing right now. So I just want to, and I, I definitely hear the trauma in it. 
And, you know, when you mentioned the fire, being afraid of something, even though you had no conscious thought about it, we certainly think about that our body is really our first language. We don't have verbal language till about the age of two. And so, so often there's this way of knowing in our body that we don't have thoughts for. And yet the well-known New York Times bestseller book, The Body Keeps the Score, it's to realize that, you know, our bodies can speak volumes. That being said, as you're sort of exploring the why, one of them that sort of stuck out to me, potentially from a what we sort of refer to as a more psychodynamic perspective, is that, again, because of your medical and your health issues and the thought that when and if you got pregnant, it would be very high risk. High risk meaning it could be deadly. And so in your subconscious, if the thought of a pregnancy equals possibly deadly, there go the thought of having sex, like penetration almost equals the possibility of pregnancy. And so it wouldn't be so surprising that there might be a sort of a phobic reaction or response because again, in sort of that survival mode, it may be just sort of a defense, which is sort of your body's way of sort of protecting you. And it goes into, again, the fight flight piece. And so it's to realize that Whenever there's sort of a trauma response evoked, certainly that can impact our ability to sort of let go, relax, and be open and receptive to pleasure in all the ways that it can look. So in terms of what to do, I mean, a few things. One is you sort of mentioned that it really only happens, meaning the vomiting, when it's real and it was in caps, real physical. And so that made me really curious. Like, is it okay to be holding hands or open mouth kissing, clothes on, roaming hands? Like, at what point does the anxiety really heighten? Because it's very much associated, it sounds like, with the idea or the moving toward what seems to be sex and penetration. And so this is what we sort of refer to as creating a hierarchy, systematic desensitization, right? We want to really pair a relaxation response. So it's um, something like, say, kissing is um, zero, but roaming hands is like a 20. We'd be looking to see, okay, what's between those two? Like really, like every five or 10 points in a scale from zero to 100, 100 being penetrative sex, really thinking through what are those increasing levels of anxiety? And then on the small levels, sort of pairing exposure and relaxation so that we're extinguishing that response. So that's one certainly important behavioral piece that you could speak to your therapist about. And the other is that, again, if right now you don't have a partner and this isn't available in all places and states, but Vina Blanchard had created the International Professional Surrogates Association. It's called IPSA and IPSA.org double check that address, but it is the International Professional Surrogate Association. And you put in Vina Blanchard and you will definitely get that information sort of by state and country who's really qualified because the idea is for somebody who doesn't have a partner, it is a trained surrogate who helps you go through these experiences and do in a sense sort of this behavioral exposure work. Um, and again, a safe environment where that surrogate is actively working with a qualified sex therapist and they together are working together in terms of like the pacing and, you know, what are the next steps and what's happening on the emotional front. It's really a coordinated treatment. So that's certainly something that you can also look into. So the biggest thing I want to say is um, I'm so glad that you're at a place now that you're doing this work in therapy and that no matter how long it's been, it doesn't, your history doesn't define your future. You get to create the picture and you can take actions toward that. So as always, would love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. If you have a question for Megan or for me, please drop us a note through the link down in the show notes. I also want to give a shout out to a couple of awesome podcasts. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I think you'll also enjoy the Bed Post podcast. 
It's an interview show about sex and sexuality hosted by kink educator and dominatrix, Erin Pym. Guests range from sex educators and sex workers to local comedians with hilarious stories about sex. I especially recommend the episode featuring disability advocate Andrew Gerza, who is so awesome. Find the show, it's a Sonar Network show, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like listening. Please also check out the Dating Advice Girl podcast. It's hosted by Erin Tillman, who you've heard a couple of times here on the show. She's an inclusive dating coach and just so awesome. She recently hosted this panel on interracial dating and some of the unique challenges that people in mixed-race relationships are experiencing right now. It was this wonderful panel online, like a video Zoom panel, that she turned into an episode. And she has hundreds of other episodes and all kinds of cool topics. The Dating Advice Girl podcast is available on Apple Podcasts. And if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll let your friends know about it. I also so appreciate reviews and ratings wherever you listen. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com. 